Before we get going, I just want to tell you, I really feel like family because I found out that Percy always makes his own homemade, famous waffles before he goes south, and he gives some of those to family members. And this week, I got one of those bags of the waffles, of, of Percy's own recipe waffles, and they're those big, thick ones where you can just fill up all those little holes with butter and syrup and oh yeah. So, I'm going to ruin my sugar readings on that day when I enjoy those. Throughout the past two months, I have been repeatedly telling you that one of the reasons I have chosen the letters of John is because I think that if we would heed the message of these letters, we would be able to have hope in the midst of this shaken world in which we're living. From the very first week, I showed you how John is being on top of the table in that he gives us the reason he writes. He gives us these purpose statements. So that. So that. And the first purpose statement that John gave us is in the very first paragraph of his letter. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. John, would, John wrote, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, there's the purpose. In other words, what John is saying is, hey, I was an eyewitness. I saw. I heard. And I want you to know, I'm proclaiming to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What joy is John talking about? Well, I think he's talking about the joy in knowing of the salvation that's possible as well as that which is found in the fellowship of the saints, of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Being part of a family. We sang that song quite a bit that first couple of years. We haven't sang it for a while. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Are you? And my wife can tell you, m many of the times that she sees me in tears, and I'm a big crybaby, I'm not going to deny it. I can cry watching a movie with her. But many of the times that she sees me in tears, and she asks me, what's up? I will just tell her of a family member or a loved one who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And recently I shared with her, I said, you know, I'm almost 68 years old. 
I'm going to be dying in another, who knows, decade, two decades, maybe today. I mean, I understand that. But when I die from everything I know, there are people in my family that I will not see again for eternity. And that's a tough one. Here's what John Stott has written. The purpose of the proclamation of the Gospel is therefore stated in terms not of salvation, but of fellowship. Yet properly understood, this is the meaning of salvation in its wildest embrace. And what is the secret fullness of joy? It's the fellowship with the Father and Son which the proclamation creates. For if the immediate purpose of the proclamation is the establishment of the fellowship, the ultimate purpose is the completion of joy. John recognizes that his own joy in Christ cannot be complete if fellow believers for whom he feels responsible are in danger of being led aside to some other fellowship that's bogus, that's not a part of the truth. And in 2 John verse 4 and in 3 John verse 4, he'll express a very similar emotion when he'll say that his joy comes from knowing that others are walking in the truth. Then as we moved into the second chapter of 1 John, we began our look at what I keep referring to as the first test. And, and I'm going to tell you, I didn't create that. It's not unique with me. This idea of the three tests comes from John Stott, who I think from his references got it from Robert Law. Uh, so it's not... Robert Law was writing back in 1909. So this isn't something new, a new way of looking at these letters. But it's what I refer to as the moral test. The moral test of whether or not we are true believers. And, and I shared this test. Kay is, Kay is my witness. I shared this test with a person this week who came into my office. It's a test that stresses the importance of keeping the commands of God. And with it comes the second purpose statement. John says, I'm writing these things, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And John's not saying we're going to be perfect. He's differentiating between unintentional sinning. I shared with you the illustration of when our boys would be playing. If they slipped into some mud, we just got them inside, got them cleaned up, and sent them back out again. And we probably once or twice said, boys will be boys. But if we looked out there and saw them playing in the mud that we had told them not to get into, that was a different story. You see, it's a difference between sinning unintentionally, making mistakes, missing the mark, and practicing sin. 
And we ask ourselves the question, are we practicing righteousness or are we, more accurately, practicing sin? What is it that characterizes our walk 24-7, 365? And I ask the question, and I need to ask the question again. How would people truly, that truly know you, how would they describe you? As someone who is practicing righteousness, although they make mistakes? Or somebody who, you know, oh man, I knew. I had to go to the doctor one day. And I said to him, yeah, you've been to the doctor a lot of times. I don't know why you're upset about it. He said, well, I'll tell you why I'm so upset about it. Because I'm ready for him to actually be about being a doctor. And he keeps saying he's practicing medicine. How would people describe this? Are we practicing sinning? But what seems to me to be the primary reason, the overall reason that John writes these letters, is his final purpose statement. It comes in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's one of the examples. One of the 39 times in 32 of the verses in just these five chapters that John uses the word know. And 14 times in, in 1 John, he says, we know emphatically. We can have certainty. As you, you and I were riding in the car last Saturday, I think it was Hugh that brought it up, not me. But looked out and said, I don't know how anybody can look at creation and not believe that there's a Creator. That they can somehow believe that it happened by chance. And I said to him, you know what? You're absolutely right. And it takes more faith to believe that it happened by chance than it does to believe that there's a Creator. There are a lot more leaps and jumps you have to make. We can know that we have eternal life. And twice in our text for today, John is going to repeat a phrase. What if I told you about things that are repeated in a short time span? If they're repeated, it's probably for a reason. And twice he's going to repeat the phrase, by this we know or by this we shall know, in just one paragraph. In fact, our text is wrapped. John uses what I have shared with you, identified for you, as an inclusio. A literary device that serves as brackets. Let me tell you a funny story. A friend of mine published a book just recently. Sent me a copy of it. And I was reading his book. And I called him up. And I said, man, I don't know if it's too late. But spell check, correct check, did you a disservice. Because I know that in on this page, this page, and this page, you meant to say inclusio, because you have it in italics, 
But spell check changed it into inclusion. Inclusio is kind of a, a phrase, a, 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 another language brought into English that means brackets or wrapping. And John brackets our text for today with this idea is he wants us to know something. And that should say to us that what he wants us to know is very important. He's recycling back through the text. Last Sunday, we revisited what John Stott identified as the social text. Love in action. Verse 18. And the two things that should have jumped out at us from the text is how self-sacrifice is the essence of love. And love is the evidence of life. I was reading a short article this week. And one of the things that that author had in that article, and I wasn't doing this in research for the sermon today, but one of the things that writer who was writing about problems of abuse said was, there is a risk in loving, but not to love is not to live. Love, it's the evidence of life. And John says it's the evidence of eternal life. So in our text for today, John is stressing once again the importance of being obedient to the commands of God. Being obedient. That was what I said to this person that came in. They were talking to me about how they were talking to God and God was talking to them. And I said, whoa, whoa, time out. What body of believers are you worshiping with? Well, uh, I went over here to this building. I said, they're not even having worship services yet. What body of believers are you worshiping with? Well, I'm not. I said, well, Hebrews 10 in the imperative, as a command says, do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. It's a command that we come together as brothers and sisters and worship. And 1 John says, if you do not obey the commandments, you don't know God. Today, we're looking again at the importance of being obedient. And I think John's pretty clear about it. Which is why I've chosen as my title, What We Can, and it didn't come out in this font. I think it did on your bulletin. Because I used all caps on the word can. What we can know. And our text is 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. But before I go there, how many of you at one point in your life memorized John 3.16? I see some hands. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know what? I don't think we should say verse 16 without saying verse 17. For God sent His Son. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I think it's beyond coincidental that 1 John 
3.16 goes right back to that same theme or concept. The way we know love, the way we know the truth of John 3.16 is explained to us right here in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Self-sacrifice. So let's get into our text for today. By this we shall know. The first bracket. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. And God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. In his commentary, John Stott says that he thinks that what is the connecting point between the preceding paragraph that we looked at last Sunday and this paragraph is this concept of truth. The word truth. John has already stressed the importance. Actually, in terms of the preceding verse, verse 18, he stressed the necessity of loving in truth. And now he begins this new paragraph by immediately going on to indicate that this is how we know that we belong to the truth. If in fact, we are loving how? In deed and in truth. You see, words are meaningless at times. John wants us to know that truth can only characterize the behavior of those whose character originates in truth. When we are loving others in truth, we are in fact demonstrating that we ourselves belong to the truth. As I said last week, love should characterize every aspect of this church. Since our prototype is Christ, love originates in God, it issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. By the way, the expression when John writes we are of the truth in the text we just read, that also occurs in the Gospel back in chapter 18, verse 37. It's just before that famous or infamous question of Pilate. What is truth? Here's what John writes of the words of Jesus in John 18.37. Then Pilate said to Jesus, So you're a king? And Jesus answered, 
You say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth. The exact same three words in the Greek. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I think John is remembering what Jesus said. I think John is saying, as he, as I already stated, our paragraph begins uh, and ends with a sentence introduced by this is how we know the concern as in the whole letter is there is a truth that we can be certain of. We can have assurance. And one thing we can know is that there is a condemnation that we all face. It's right there in verse 20. You and I know with certainty that there are times when our hearts will condemn us. John understood that. I mean, did you notice that in verse 20, he didn't say, if ever, but whenever our hearts condemn us. By the way, I assume that you know that heart in the New Testament refers to our feelings. It's not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood. Sometimes it's translated, and I think correctly, conscience. In fact, in the New Testament, most often, heart is used only figuratively as the seat of the desires, feelings, affections, passions, impulses. And all of us know with certainty that the accusations of our conscience will be true accusations at times. But sometimes they'll be false. I think inspired by Satan because John in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 describes Satan as the accuser, the accuser of our brothers. And how does he accuse? In deception. In either case, John wants to make sure that we don't let that inner voice overcome us. Rather, John says we're to set our hearts at rest, to reassure our hearts are His words, in His presence, that is, in the presence of God. John's being emphatic. We must be able to do that in the sight of God. Now what seems to be implied to me is that we will only be able to do this if we know that we belong to the truth. It's by means of what we know. I mean, it's the knowledge that we have that will be the means by which the heart's doubt can be erased. We have to know that what we know has the upper hand on what we feel. I had somebody come into my office one time who is living in a sinful relationship according to the Bible. I'm not the judge. It's what the Bible says. And they said to me, well, I know what the Bible says, but I feel. And I said to them, 
I'm sorry. But your feelings are out of sorts. Your feelings are wrong. God says this, and you know God says this, so you are being rebellious. But how can we know this? What's the meaning of this is how we know with which the verse begins? It seems that John is referring back to the preceding paragraph about love that we looked at last week. It is everyone who loves, who has been born of God and knows God. Love is the final objective test of our Christian profession. For true love, in the sense of self-sacrifice, is not natural to us as human beings. The number one criticism of the people out there this morning is that you people talk a big game, but you don't walk the way you talk. If there's nothing else that I can do in the time that I live here, and I don't know how long it's going to be. I mean, I've already committed to at least seven more years with the camp. I told them, I said, I don't even like the word retirement. It appears in too many obituaries. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't even foresee making any changes till I'm at least 75. But I want, if nothing else is said, I want the people in this community to say, you know, I've never been over there to the building to hear him. Now, I'd rather everybody in town say, oh, I've been there and I've heard him. But I would rather they say, you know, I've never been over there to the building to hear him. But I can tell you this. I've watched him and he cares about people. I want it to be something that's seen authentically. And I think that's what John is emphasizing here. John will begin right here, especially in verse 24, but he'll continue in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, to develop how the existence of self-sacrificial love is evidence of new birth and of the indwelling Spirit. I baptized somebody in this baptistry, and a week later I hear them say a hateful statement, I'm going to say, hey, maybe we need to go back again. Try this one more time. Because maybe it didn't take. <laughs> we can only demonstrate what we believe with our actions. I got one of those old-fashioned parachutes on again. It's got shoelaces. And shoestrings. And what's behind those shoestrings? You know. We call it the tongue. You know what? No matter what this tongue says, these two tongues are going to outvote this tongue every time. I can say whatever I want with this tongue, but if these two tongues in my shoes aren't demonstrating what I'm saying with this tongue, it's bogus. It's worthless. And that leads me to the second point. Because if we thus love in truth, 
We can indeed have full assurance in our hearts. There is a confidence that we can have. Robert Law, in that book that I said that John Stott refers to, the book's called The Tests of Life. He said that there are three actors in this spiritual drama, three speakers that have a role in this inward debate going on. It's kind of like there's a trial going on. And our heart is the accuser. We are the defendant. And God is the judge. And whenever our hearts condemn us, we ourselves, who are distinct from our heart, and stand, as it were, outside of it, we must set it at rest. We must reassure it. We must pacify it of its misgivings. I guarantee you, everybody in here, at one point, has said something like this to ourselves. I don't know why I'm feeling like this. I know better. Haven't we? We can step outside ourselves and say, why am I thinking that? Why did that come up? In fact, we can almost go into an infinite regression. We can think about what we're thinking and then we can think about why we're thinking about what we're thinking. It's unbelievable how far we can go into that process. How do, we, how do we reassure our hearts? Well, partly as we've seen by the fact that we know we belong to the truth. But partly also by the fact that God is greater than our hearts. And God knows everything. There are times that our conscience accuses us justly. The Apostle Paul, didn't he say, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And he would identify himself then a verse later by saying, wretched man that I am. But our conscience is not infallible. There are times that we don't feel guilty, but we should. And there are other times that we feel guilty, though we know that we're not wrong. And the condemnation we feel is sometimes unjust. And at that time, we need to appeal to our conscience uh, to look to God, who's greater and more knowledgeable. Sometimes we just have to act our way into feeling correctly. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I am often my biggest critic And so, what John is saying to me in this passage is that I can have confidence by means of true knowledge, by means of my own knowledge about how I really do love and love others. And I can confirm again with myself by going back to passages in His Word that I know to be true. That God's knowledge of our thoughts and our motives are just and that we can place our trust in an all-knowing and all-loving God. Which leads me to my third and final point. There's a communion that we can enjoy. John turns from 
the curse of the condemning heart and how to reassure it, to the blessing of a heart that's made tranquil or which does not condemn. And this blessing is not only the peace of an untroubled conscience, but it's the result. The result, namely, that we can have communion with God which is free and unrestricted and something that we can actively seek and experience. And we can also have confidence that not only can we approach God in prayer, but we can know that we will receive answers from Him as well. I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times I've had to share with somebody who was struggling, who said, man, I prayed and I prayed. And the Bible says that God will answer my prayers. But He didn't answer me. God does hear and answer our prayers when, He says in verse 22, we obey His commands and we do what pleases Him. But listen closely. Obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. We cannot earn the right to have our prayers answered. I cannot hold God con uh, subject to my desires. And I've heard people do that. God, I'm going to name this and claim it and you have to answer it. Who do I think I am to pray something like that? That's not what His Word says. Obedience is the indispensable condition. And this promise is probably a, an echo of our Lord's promise where the exact same two verbs occur when Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you for everyone who asks, receives. <coughs> Yet the simple and unqualified promise must it must be interpreted in the light of the other conditions that are in the Scriptures. If prayer is going to be answered, it must be according to God's will. Psalm 70, 34, verse 4, 37, verse 4, and John 15, 7. And that doesn't mean, especially when we say, well, we got to pray in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean that I just tack on to the end of my prayer I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. No, it means that I am submitting myself in obedience to the will of God and I am striving to live my life in obedience. And I am making sure that what I am wanting and what I am doing is all within this picture of WWJD. What would Jesus You see, John tells us <coughs> in terms of the commands we must obey, he really says there's one command. He uses the singular. And this is his command in the singular. What? That we're to embrace faith in God, we're to believe in the Son Jesus, and we're to love one another. Reciprocal love. It's already been mentioned back in chapter 2. But here for the first time, John 
says believing and loving. Just like in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul is writing, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. What counts? Only faith working through love. Both of the will of God. And John wants to make sure that we understand that. Our time has gotten away from us. But it's the idea of living and abiding. Living and abiding. Isn't that what John says here? If we'll be obedient, God will recognize our love and He'll come and abide in us as we abide in Him. That communion. That communion. And our obedience to that command is really the condition for Christ dwelling in us and our dwelling in Him. But it's also the evidence of the indwelling of the gift of the Spirit in us. So let me bring us to a conclusion. There's a passage in John chapter 14 where Judas, probably the one identified as the son of James, asks Jesus a question. A question regarding how Jesus is going to manifest Himself to His disciples, but not to the world when He's resurrected. This question is not so much why. It's a question of how. Over and over it says they didn't understand what all this talk about resurrection was all about. They just simply didn't understand it. And Jesus insists that the appearance of which He has been talking about is going to be an appearance within the circle of love that displays itself in obedience to the Son's teaching. And I think that's why He reiterates in verse 15 and verse 21 of the person who so loves and obeys Jesus that Jesus Himself promises, My Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. When I hear that, because I have become pretty deeply interested in the book of Revelation. Read it now many times. Taught it at least four times. It reminds me of the promise of Revelation 21, verses 3 and 22, where there, as our New Testament in its ending, we're told, now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be them and be their God. And John says, I didn't even see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. How do we get to that relationship? By being loving, and by being obedient. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today understanding that there are things that we believe in our head that we're not showing with our lives. Forgive us. 
Father, there are things that we know have to be true. But we don't understand them. Enlighten us. But help us. Because we have committed ourselves, we are living the life of love and obedience that You've called us to. Help us to have that assurance, that confidence, that regardless of what our hearts may tell us, that if we are living right and believing right, that You in fact are loving us and forgiving us and abiding with us. And help us to show that by the way we live as we leave here today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment today is in your red books, number 64. To God be the glory, we're going to sing two verses. before we leave. I'm sure my wife wouldn't mind if you want to come out on the side of the building and see the car that matches her fingernails. <laughs> but uh, once again, we, we just got to thank that man right back there and his love and his willingness. Youth group tonight. Youth group tonight, 5.30 the meal. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thanks for this time we've had together. Use us to show your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.